0: So, we are, this is, today is the last week in our, uh, this four-week series we're doing on uh, When Good Relationships Go Bad, uh, we've talked about conflict, started by looking at conflict in relationships. We've talked about issues around control and how that manifests itself in personal relationships. Last week, we started talking about forgiveness. This week, we're going to keep talking about forgiveness because it's such a huge topic and such a misunderstood topic. I want to set this up this morning, introduce this with a video clip, though. It's from the movie The Translator. Uh, So the movie is about a UN translator played by Nicole Kidman. And she learns of this assassination attempt against uh, a leader of an African nation uh, whose name is Zuwani. And so the scene you're going to see is a dialogue between Nicole Kidman, the translator, the UN translator, and the Secret Service agent played by Sean Penn talking about Zuwani. Who's, who's sort of a Robert Mugabe type figure, this African leader who's committed atrocities against his people in Africa. So, check this out and then we'll talk about it. What are you not telling me?
1: What are you accusing me of? How do you feel about Zawani? Never mind, I don't care for him. I feel disappointment.
0: That's a lover's word. What about Rage?
1: Of all the people that I've looked into since this thing started, the one with the darkest Zuani history is you. It was his landmines that killed you. Shh. We don't name the dead. Everyone who loses somebody wants revenge on someone on God if they can't find anyone else. But in Africa, in Metobo, the coup believe that the only way to end grief is to save a life. If someone is murdered, a year of mourning ends with a ritual that we call the drowning man trial. There's an all-night party beside a river at dawn. The killer is put in a boat, he's taken out on the water, and he's dropped, he's bound so that he can't swim. The family of the dead then has to make a choice. They can let him drown, or they can swim out and save him. The coup believe that if the family lets the killer drown, they'll have justice, but spend the rest of their lives in mourning. But if they save him, if they admit that life isn't always just, that very act can take away their sorrow. Vengeance is a lazy
0: form of grief. Interesting, eh? It's a powerful scene, isn't it? Brilliantly written. And very thought-provoking around this whole issue of forgiveness. Especially this ritual. How does that sit with you? This ritual of a victim's family that uh, the, the offender is, is bound and drowned and the family have to make a decision as to whether they're going to swim out and save him. And if they if they don't, and they let them drown, they will have justice, but spend the rest of their lives mourning. And if they do swim out and save the murderer, they accept that the world is not just. But in that very act, they may take away their mourning. Interesting, isn't it? It's not it's not comfortable, but it illustrates it illustrates the point we finished with. Uh, last Sunday, if you remember, that forgiveness is as much about the forgiver as it is about the forgiven. Forgiveness is as much for the forgiver as it is for the forgiven. We assume often that forgiveness is just this thing we do, a charity act for someone else. That out of our, out of our kindness, I'm giving you this gift because you need it and it's all for you. In fact, forgiveness is so, perhaps even primarily about us. For our healing and for our restoration, it is God's gift to heal our own souls. That as long as you're holding on to the bitterness, as long as you're holding on to all the rage, all the resentment, all the anger, as long as that's still there and as long as you're harboring it, you're not going to be able to move on. And that person, in a sense, is still holding emotional control over you. They are still determining your feelings, they are still determining your state, they are still, in effect, holding your life to ransom emotionally speaking, as long as you're holding on to that rage. Not only that, but as long as you're holding on to all that, and as long as you're refusing to go through this process of of, of forgiveness, you're also unable to properly go through the process of grieving. You remember that line, vengeance is a lazy form of grief. It's brilliant, isn't it? Because vengeance, the desire for retribution, the desire for retaliation, keeps us in the early stages of grief. It keeps us in the stage of anger. And it prevents, as long as you stay there, and as long as that just becomes a broken record going around and around, you are prevented from moving through grief and out the other side into new possibility, into new life, into new hope. You're just stuck back here. So all the while we think that we're punishing someone by withholding forgiveness, and what we're actually doing is punishing ourselves. Remember that quote from Lewis Smedes that I mentioned to you last week that when we forgive, we set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner we set free is us. I'm going to mention Smeed's a few times this morning because he's got a brilliant book on forgiveness. I put it in your bulletins. Not the book, but the mention of the book. Uh, It's great. If you want to read some more on this, The art of forgiveness, or the art of forgiving, is is very, very good. Very, very practical wisdom around forgiveness. And so I'm drawing pretty heavily on him this morning. What I want to do is just briefly, this this is very practical stuff today. This is ground level, this is grassroots. I want to give you five things that forgiveness is not. Five myths around forgiveness. And then I just want to walk with you through what forgiveness is. And that practical process, for those of you who are ready and willing to to initiate this, what forgiveness looks like when our hearts are ready to do it. So, what forgiveness is not? First of all, forgiveness is not forgetting. That's that's the one cliche, isn't it, that we roll out around forgiveness. First thing that comes to our minds half the time when you hear the word forgiveness, I'll forgive and forget. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? You you forgive and then you forget. I don't know where that came from, but it's just plain wrong. We don't forgive and we, we can't forget. I think part of the problem within Christian circles is we think this idea comes from the Bible. We think this idea of forgiving and forgetting because there's a verse in Jeremiah 31 verse 34 where God says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. It's picked up again in Hebrews. Same verse is quoted. So you read that and you think, oh, so God, God forgets. There's even a song. What's that band that sings the song about God throwing our sins into his great big sea of forgetfulness? We kind of get this idea in our head that God erases His own memory when He forgives us. God doesn't literally forget your sin. I guarantee you, if God wanted to, He could list every one of them. God remembers every transgression. God doesn't erase His own... I mean, think about that logically. If God literally forgot your sin, He would cease to be omniscient. He would no longer be all-knowing because He wouldn't know the past. What this verse is saying and what God is saying here to Israel is that I will not remember your sins in the sense that I will no longer hold your sin against you. That's the idea of remembering. In fact, at times in the Scriptures, that word against is used, that I won't remember your sin against you. In other words, I won't take retribution. I won't punish you. I won't exact vengeance upon you. That's the remembering we're talking about, not literally recalling it to mind. Of course, God could do that. But what God is saying to His people is, the forgiveness I'm offering is the kind of forgiveness, I'm not going to remember it in the form of retribution. I'm not going to remember it in the form of revenge. That's the model for what our forgiveness of other people looks like. Make sense? It's not that we're trying to erase our own memory. Of course we can't do that. Nor should we. But it means that we say to our offender... I'm not going to remember your sin in the sense that I'm not going to hold it against you. And I'm no longer going to ask for some kind of repayment. And I'm no longer going to seek to get even. Lewis Smedes again says this, Forgiving what we cannot forget creates a new way to remember. We change the memory of our past into a hope for the future. It's a great quote, isn't it? forgiving what we cannot forget we cannot and we should not forget what has been done against us but we transform the process of forgiveness is the transformation of that painful memory into new hope for the future in a way that actually makes us stronger we carry the best of it into the future we carry the strength that we gained in the spirit through the act of forgiving we carry that into our future it makes us a stronger person we carry that profound recognition of our own need for forgiveness <clears throat> Our own humanity and humility before God, we carry that forward into the future. All of this is strengthening. All of this is hopeful if we let it. It's not erasing our memory. It's transforming that memory into a hope for a new day and a new future. So forgiveness is not literally forgetting. It's simply not holding someone's transgression against them. Number two, forgiveness is not reconciliation. And we've touched on this in the series, so I won't labor the point. But, but it's helpful, I think, to think about forgiveness and reconciliation as two separate things. Now, Lord willing, both may occur. You may be able to forgive, and the relationship may be reunited. But sometimes that's not possible. And sometimes that's not advisable. And sometimes that's not even safe. To go back into a situation where you are at risk, to go back into an abusive relationship, Emotionally, physically, whatever. Forgiveness takes one person. Reconciliation takes two. Forgiveness, when you forgive someone, it may not even require talking to them. Sometimes that's not necessary. Sometimes that's not appropriate. Forgiveness is something you can simply do before the Lord. Now, I think the hope is always, the ideal, of course, is always that there might be reunion. But don't hold back from forgiving because you think you've got to run back into their arms, be best buddies, and have the relationship back to like it always was. That is not the case. Forgiveness is something different to that. It is a process that you go through of setting that person free from the debt that they owe you. But it's not the same as reconciliation. Number three, forgiveness is not instantaneous. And I had to learn this. Had a situation a few years ago where I went through this process of forgiving someone and I, you know, had a great prayer time with God. Really, you know, gave up this this grief and this wound and this hurt and this anger and I let it all out and it was very cathartic. And then I woke up the next morning and all the same emotions were there. All the anger was still there. All the bitterness, all the rage didn't feel different at all. And you can wonder about that, can't you? You feel like, well, have I really gone through forgiveness? Have I really forgiven them? What's the problem? Why don't I feel differently? You've got to let yourself off the hook emotionally here. You've got to take the pressure off yourself, I think, to suddenly feel differently overnight about forgiving. The wound that you've been inflicted with does damage you. It hurts you and it damages your emotions, and you just can't expect that to heal overnight. You can't expect it to heal in the space of one prayer to God or one great time of pouring out your soul. Important as those things are, the healing of your emotions is going to take time. It's a process. It's a journey. Forgiveness sometimes is a lifelong journey. Not only do we forgive our brother 77 times, sometimes you've got to forgive someone 77 times for the same offence. You go through a process of forgiving and then you wake up the next morning and you forgive them all over again. And you wake up the next morning and you forgive them. Or maybe more accurately we should say you apply your forgiveness of them afresh. And you apply, and, and when those thoughts again come and take hold, that bitterness and that rage and that stomach-churning resentment, you apply your forgiveness again. And when you've got an opportunity to get even with them, you apply your forgiveness again. But don't feel like you're some kind of second-class Christian because the feelings are still there and because your emotions haven't healed yet. Give yourself the time. Give yourself the space. Just take the pressure off yourself. Forgiveness takes a long time. God will walk with you through it, but it's a journey, often a lifelong one. And the sooner we just reconcile ourselves to that, the better. So forgiveness is not instantaneous. It's a journey. Number four, forgiving. forgiveness is not tolerating wrongdoing. If a husband comes home at two in the morning drunk and his wife's had no idea where he's been and she just says, hey, that's okay. Don't worry about it. No problem. Yeah, I had to sort the kids out by myself, but don't worry about that. Yeah, I had no idea where you were. Yeah, you're completely drunk, but hey, no worries. Don't worry. It's all good. That's not forgiveness. That's not what forgiveness should be. First words out of her mouth should be, don't ever do this again. Sometimes we think forgiving is being a doormat. You know, that we're just supposed to just just take it and not care. That's not forgiveness. I, I thought a great example of forgiveness was you remember the, uh, the parents of those six students that drowned in the uh, Mangatapopo canyoning tragedy? And, uh, I mean, it seemed to me they were full of forgiveness. Genuine, sincere forgiveness. But you notice it didn't preclude them from seeking an, an inquiry into what happened. And I think fair enough. Well, I think that was a great example of what biblical forgiveness looks like. Personally full of forgiveness. And it wasn't a witch hunt. That was obvious. But there's still a need for answers, and there's still a need to identify error, and there's still a need to right wrongs, especially so that the same thing doesn't happen again. I say fair enough. And I think alongside that, you can go through this personal process of forgiveness and Lord willing, reconciliation. But forgiveness confronts wrongdoing. It stands against it. It doesn't put up with it. It doesn't tolerate it. Forgiving is not being a doormat. There are still appropriate ways to seek justice. And yet, in a parallel stream, soften our heart and go through the biblical process of forgiving. So forgiveness does not tolerate wrongdoing. Don't feel like in forgiving someone you are minimizing what has happened or just letting them off the hook or abdicating your need for justice. You leave justice with God And you can go through the process of forgiving. But there's still a need to confront wrongdoing. And finally, and this is a bit controversial, but forgiveness does not require remorse. It's tricky because there's a verse, two verses in Luke 17, that I've wrestled with personally in putting this message together. I'll read them to you. Jesus is talking. Luke 17, 3, he says, If a brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, on the surface of it, that sounds like you withhold forgiveness until that person comes groveling back. And if and only if they repent, then you forgive them, right? Doesn't Doesn't that sound like what's happening here? And I would suggest that this is one time in the Scriptures, maybe the only time, when what Jesus is doing is bundling together these concepts of forgiveness and reconciliation. And it reflects this ideal in the Scriptures that, Lord willing, shalom may, may be restored. And God willing, the relationship might be able to come back together. And I think Luke and here Jesus, as he's speaking, is taking the concept of reconciliation and taking the concept of forgiveness and merging them together and calling that whole process forgiving. And that is the hope, and that is the ideal. But you're not always going to get that apology. You're not always going to get that remorse. Forgiving is easier, isn't it, when someone comes groveling back in sackcloth and ashes, confessing their wrongdoings, extolling your virtues... Telling you all the reasons why you were right and they were wrong. Forgiveness is a bit easier then, isn't it? It's a lot harder when that person has no interest in apologizing. When they just, you know, they carry on or or they keep inflicting damage. They keep speaking and acting in ways that keep hurting you. They take no responsibility. Forgiveness is tough. But I would say even then it's still necessary. You think about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors or who have transgressed against us. No implication there that these people have repented. No implication there that they've come back and expressed any remorse. Think about what Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. No indication there that there's remorse. No apology there. And yet forgiveness is still exercised. I'd say the tough truth about forgiveness is that even when there's no apology, even when there is not the slightest hint of remorse, forgiveness is still required. That's where biblical forgiveness gets really tough. But that's where the gospel starts to look different to the way in which others would react. Even when there's no remorse, we can and we must still forgive those who offend us. So let me just briefly assume for a minute that you are willing to go through this process of forgiving. And I know not all of you have got someone right now that you need to forgive. But I would say in the whole context of the journey of forgiveness, almost all of us would be somewhere on that journey. You know, some of you might be right at the beginning of it and you're right in the middle of a conflict with someone and you are yet to begin this whole journey of forgiving. Others of you are somewhere on the road and you're wrestling with it, and you're working your way through it. But even those of you who have maybe long since forgiven, there's still questions about how you treat that person, how you interact with them, and what your disposition is towards them. So let me just talk through very practically, again, drawing from Lewis Smead's, what this process of forgiveness looks like. Assuming you're ready, assuming you're willing, what does it actually mean? What do I do to forgive someone? And let me premise this with saying that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, this is a process that we should go through prayerfully with God, in prayer. Not just something you try and do by yourself for someone else. It's only by the grace of God that we're able to forgive because it begins, again, with that recognition of what we need to be forgiven from and what we need to be forgiven for. It's out of that that we forgive others. So this is a process of communion with God, speaking to Him and with Him about what has happened and allowing Him to lead us through it. So it begins by acknowledging the offence and the hurt that it's caused. Now sometimes we think forgiving is just kind of putting it aside, just minimising it, pretending it never happened, just kind of trying, trying to push it away. I would say forgiving starts by confronting it. Looking that pain and that wound and that offence square in the eye and staring at it. And allowing yourself to feel the difficult weight of it. It starts by getting brutally and honestly real with God and just pouring out to Him exactly how you feel. Don't mince your words. Don't try and protect God from what you want to say to Him. Just let Him have it. If you want to get angry, get angry. If you want to use some choice words, then use them. You go ahead and just pour out your heart and you tell Him exactly how you're feeling, exactly what the wound is and what damage it has done. This is where we've got to start. It's not this kind of nice platitudes, bumper sticker Christianity, but by just getting real with ourselves and with God about what's really gone on here. Interestingly, Lewis Smead says that in this process, what happens is that we rediscover the humanity of the person who wounded us. It's interesting to think about. That as long as you're just kind of minimizing stuff and not thinking about it and pushing it aside, the person they just... They're just distant. They're out there somewhere. They don't really exist in a very human form for you. But when we bring this wound front and center, we really stare it down, and we bring that person front and center in our own consciousness. Somehow, paradoxically, they become a little bit more human. And we realize that they're not just this impersonal offense, but they're a broken messed up, far from perfect human being. But a human being who is nevertheless made in the image of God. And a human being who maybe is not so infinitely different to you after all. Because ironically I think what starts to happen is we we see ourselves in the face of our enemies. If you if you let this process, that's where it'll take you. God will start to show you yourself in the face of your enemy because you'll realize that we're all capable and we do offend and we wrong and we transgress one another and we have all deeply offended God and much as there's been this wrong that's been done to you you stand with your offender in the same desperate need of the grace and mercy of God and in that respect there's no difference between you because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God right? both you and the one who has wronged you And there'll be times you need forgiveness as well. So we start to see the person as a little more human. And maybe start to see ourselves as a little more human in the process. So acknowledge the hurt. Acknowledge the offense and the hurt that it's caused. Number two, and this takes us right to the heart of what forgiveness is. Give up the right to vengeance. You say it like that, it sounds so easy. But this is the heart of it, isn't it? This is ultimately what forgiveness comes down to. Forgiveness means acknowledging this person has offended me. They have incurred a debt against me that I have an entitlement to recoup. And I'm going to choose to cancel that debt. I'm going to choose to release them from what they owe me. That sense of entitlement that you have, that sense of injustice that you have about what's happened. Put it right, you are laying that down. You are giving up that right to get even, to pay them back in practice or in your mind, and you are surrendering your own right to vengeance. This is so unbelievably hard. It's only in the power of the Spirit that we have any grace to do this. I find this really, really hard. That's why it's a lifelong process, surrendering my right to vengeance and retribution and retaliation. This guy called Ken Sand, who wrote a book called The Peacemaker. And in this book, he just gives four practical promises. He calls them the four promises of forgiveness that take you to a grassroots level of understanding what this means to give up the right to vengeance. And as I read these, you might want to write them down. You might want to think about making these promises to someone who has hurt you and wounded you. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident. We assume, you know, well, I'm not going to actually take out my vengeance upon you, but hey, I'm going to crucify you in my mind. I'm going to slay you in my mind. I'm going to fantasize about all the things that I would like to do to see your demise. Giving up the right to vengeance means that we don't take vengeance even in our minds. Doesn't mean you won't feel angry, but it means you won't harbor anger. Doesn't mean you won't feel bitterness, but it means that you won't let bitterness fester. Doesn't mean you won't feel the rage from time to time, but it means you're not going to nurture it, you're not going to cultivate it, you're not going to let it sit there. I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Man, this is hard. Now, I mean, surely if I can't actually slay you in my mind, at least I can reach back and bring it up in the occasional argument, especially in marriage situations. This is so convenient, you know, let's be honest. You're in the middle of the argument, you know, you've got a little sort of track record of what's happened, isn't it convenient just to reach back into the records of history and just bring up a little grenade there that you can lob over the fence just to help demolish the person and win the argument, you know? Just me, is it? Okay. <laughs> Come on, this is real life, right? This is hard to give up, isn't it? I will not bring this incident up ever. I won't allude to it. I won't make body gestures that signify I might be thinking about it. I'm not going to make little veiled references to it. I'm not going to use a code name for it. I'm just going to not mention it. Right? This is the heart of it. I'm not going to bring it up, no matter how convenient it is for my argument at the in the moment. This is hard stuff. Number three, I will. Oh, this is tough. I will not talk to others about this incident. I mean, surely if I can't bring it up with you, I can at least you know, talk to a couple of mates over a beer about this. Can't do that either. I will not talk to it. Even if they bring it up. That's not permission to then just jump into it. And I I remember one time, I'm not setting myself up as a great example of this, but I remember one time there was a situation, someone had done something uh, against me and someone else knew about it and they brought it up with me. Kind of get a conversation going and have a bit of back and forwards about this awful thing that had happened. And I just felt I had to say to them, you know, I'm going through a process of trying to forgive. And I'm just trying to not talk about it. You know, I'm just trying to deal with that in conversation. And sometimes you need to say that to prevent the conversation just going down a road where it's so easy. Because you're talking about a third party, you don't even need to say it to their face. It's so easy to go down this road. But this is a tough promise. I will not talk to others about this incident. A couple of exceptions here. One would be a counsellor, of course. There's a need to speak to someone, especially in really significant and serious grievances. You need to be able to have that outlet. You need to be able to process this with someone else. I think, too, in marriage situations, this can be tricky, can't it? Because you've got to be able to be honest. Someone's offended you, someone's wounded you. You're not just going to keep quiet to your husband or wife about this. You need to be able to offload But I would say, even then, there comes a point where it gets unhealthy. Anna and I have found this. Had times someone's done something against one of us, and we've just talked about it, talked about it, kept on talking about it. It keeps coming up. It's like our conversation's becoming defined by this now. It's dragging us down. We're becoming really negative. We've had to sort of commit to just not talking about this. So there is a time for processing this with a spouse. And then there is a time. You've got to be discerning and wise here. There is a time to move on and say I'm not, we're no longer going to talk about because it, it's not good for us either, our relationship, to just keep on seething about this. And finally, number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Again, doesn't mean you're going to be best friends, doesn't mean you're going to run back into each other's arms and pretend like it's never happened, but it's simply you saying, I'm not going to let this incident break the shalom between us. It's your commitment to still treat them with respect when you see them. To still be friendly. To still, still treat them with kindness and dignity as a human being. To initiate reconciliation where that's appropriate. To do what you can do to restore shalom as far as you're able. Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Not necessarily full restoration but it's you saying, I'm not going to let this incident define our future relationship. I'm not going to let this be the dividing wall anymore. So I don't know how those promises sit with you. I don't know all the situations that are going through your mind and the people and the names and the faces and the emotions that this is dredging up for you. But I want to give you an invitation as we finish up this morning got a cane basket up the front here on a table with a whole lot of rocks in it. And I want to invite you, if this is appropriate for you, while we're taking communion in a couple of minutes, to come forward and to take a rock that represents the life of the person who has wounded you. Take that rock and walk over to the cross and place it at the bottom of the cross. What you're symbolizing in doing that is that you are laying this person down before the Lord. You are giving up your right to exact vengeance upon them. And at the same time, you are bringing to the cross all of your burdens, your pain, and the grief that you feel over what has happened and receiving afresh the healing balm of the Spirit of Jesus to restore and renew, and guide you along that journey of forgiveness. Some of you are right at the beginning of this road. Maybe you haven't started. Maybe you're just refusing. I want to invite you. Come and take a rock. And take the life of that person and lay them down before the Lord. Some of you have been on this road a long time, and you're wondering why it's not ending, and you're wondering why all the feelings are still there and they're not going away. And even as soon as we've started talking about it this morning, it's like it happened yesterday. It's so fresh. I want to invite you to come and take a rock and lay it down at the foot of the cross, symbolizing again, I'm going to take another step on this journey. I know it's lifelong, but I'm taking one more step today. One more step along this road. And some of you have long since forgiven. But I still want to invite you forward because you can take this rock place it at the foot of the cross and pray a prayer of blessing over the life of that person who hurt you all those years ago not trying to dredge it all up not trying to reignite it but I've found on a practical level that one of the best ways of moving forward one of the best ways of moving through this is to forgive by that person this is the final step in this three-step process of forgiveness, is allowing God to change your feelings over time. Not instantaneously, but over time. One of the best ways I know of doing this is by praying for that person. Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Something happens when you lift that person before the Lord and you pray blessing on their life and for their family, And you pray that God would be good and be kind to them. Hard as those words are to say to God. Something happens in that moment where God softens our own heart and just melts us a little bit more and makes us a little bit more willing to forgive. So I want to invite you, if you're going to take a rock, maybe you need to take an armful of rocks depending on how many people have wounded you. But if you're going to come and take a rock and put it at the foot of the cross, as you do that, Pray for that person. Not out loud, but just in your head before the Lord. Pray for that person. Pray for blessing. Pray for shalom. Pray for God's goodness in their life and His healing in yours. So if you're going to come and take one of these rocks, you can, you can do that first, and then you can go to the side tables and take communion from there. We'll give this a few minutes. We've got a few minutes. If not, you can just move to the side tables and take communion in your own time. This is the space and the time to process this with the Lord and let him just move you another notch, another step along the long road to forgiveness. So let's pray. Jesus, for every person in this room who needs to forgive someone this morning, I pray you'd grant them the strength and the courage and the grace of Christ to take that step. Lord, wherever we are on this journey, however far along or if it's just beginning, God, bring us back to that wonderful knowledge of what you've done for us, the forgiveness that you have granted to us in spite of our sin while we were still enemies, even though we didn't want it. You've forgiven us and you've set us free. God, empower us and strengthen us to hold out that gift of life to those people that have said things and done things and treated us in ways that have really hurt. We're honest about all those emotions, God. We have been wounded. And we ask that you would heal us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us expressed in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. I mean.